I'm going to open it up. So uh, that call was Kelvin, and he's not going to be here today. He's uh, running a fever. He's going to get checked out what's going on. So uh, I've been scrambling ever since. And I have my nice pile of stuff to walk out of the house with, my new phone, who I've been arguing with all morning, uh, and may for a moment or two been out of fellowship. And, uh, and then I arrive here only to realize I did not walk out with my Bible or my notes. So, so a, uh, as, as in the old school uh, uh, nerd uh, 180 degree bat turn, uh, if you remember, the, if you remember that, uh, remember that show, that got me going there. So had to sneak in, had to sneak in a little, a little comicness or whatever. So all right, with that indulgence aside, and now just trying to slow down, let's open up. Uh, we always need to open up in prayer, and maybe doubly so uh, this morning. So, Father, thank you for another opportunity to look into your Word. We thank you that you provided it for us. It would have been. Uh, in a way, Father, it would have been enough for you just to provide salvation so that we could have an eternal, an eternal relationship, eternal life with you. But you went beyond that. You gave us everything for life and godliness. You gave us a book, Father, of information, of how you see reality, how you see the world, how you are moving through the world, how you've provided that salvation for us. And moreover, Father, that the salvation includes not just salvation from an eternal destiny without you, but also a salvation from this world now, allowing us to grow up to be people that you want us to be so that when we stand before our Lord, we have the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us, Father, this morning to um, take a step in that direction as we fellowship around your word. May it be a good time of encouragement as we see things from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You're almost there. For those of you who have been through a lot or most or even all of what I was covering when you know Drew is away. Oh, and, I, and just a pause. I should have also prayed for, for Calvin, so keep him in your prayers too as he finds out what's going on. And also for Drew that uh, he has a good, good, uh, good time off. Uh, that I was going through, the, the series I was going through is based off the study I was doing, and uh, just to kind of leverage off of those efforts, that wa- that's why I was uh, using that for, for uh, pulpit substitution and filling material. So we are at the end of that study, and the, the study briefly was we looked at Revelation. There's a, a particular image in Revelation, the beast. Everyone's interested in it, and there's an increasing interest. As, as the world seems to get a little bit more unraveled day to day, there is an increasing interest on some people's parts on what's going to happen. The Bible does provide us a lot of information on what's going to happen, but it does take a little work to get there, to, see, to, to work through all the details. And we took the time to take everything we could learn from Daniel that applies to that, applies to that image. And as I was preparing for this final installment of that, which is a panoramic view of history, uh, you ever have uh, you ever have something, uh, what I call like a no-duh epiphany, where something occurs to you and you think back, well, I should have, I either really should have known that all along or the information was right in front of me, but it just kind of clicks in a new way. Uh, one of the things, you know, that I've mentioned from time to time when covering issues like prophecy is I've had Friends over the years, very close friends, uh, Christian friends, who uh, don't necessarily share an equivalent interest in prophetic scripture. 
And so in the con- in, in conversations about that, there is this uh, tension. This is more than one person extending back to my first days as a Christian, as a teenager, as there's this, uh, there's this kind of like a tension. I don't mean like an emotional tension, but just kind of the, the ideas pushing back and forth, where uh, the person who may be not as interested in it would, like my friend from many years ago, said, well, you know, how do I live from day to day? What, what does it do for me day to day? And it, it is a valid question because, you know, we are to apply Scripture. And God has said, you know, kind of capping it all, whatever we're talking about is, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And it goes on the list of what it's profitable for. So whatever in that discussion, we have that verse as a backdrop. But it does, you know, it does kind of provoke the question, well, what does knowing what's going to happen soon, what does that do? What does that do for me? What is that? How does that help me grow? Now, there are errors in extremes. You know, there can be the one, you can take those two positions, you know, all right, prophecy, but what's more, what about me growing up as a person, be becoming that person who will hopefully one day stand before the Lord and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. How does that work? How do these things push against each other? Because, I mean, I think at the, at the end of the day, you know, if you had, let's say, just to make up a, a topic, a choice between understanding and living Genesis 12, Romans 12, or Revelation 12, you know, the first one being about Abraham, the second one being focusing on the Christian way of life, and the third one being, you know, a kind of an encapsulation of history and prophecy altogether. Obviously, the person who is living well, even absent any knowledge about how history and prophecy goes, is going to do better than someone who has all their prophetic and historical facts together, yet doesn't live the Christian way of life. So there is this sense going into these discussions that obviously Christian way of life would trump if you were forcing the issue any anything else beyond that. But it still leaves, but someone like myself who has been interested in it, even before I was a believer, uh, it still kind of leaves you feeling a little short and, uh, and, and just wishing to have like a better answer than simply, well, you know, God put it there, we should know it. I mean, that, that's important, but it seems, left me a little unsatisfied. And what struck me is something I was uh, you know, challenged with about like the purpose of everything that we have here. Like, what, what's going on in the Bible? Big, big, ultimate picture. And there are actually differences in what people believe about well, what's driving everything going on. And, you know, is, is like, for example, is, is salvation of man the chief end of everything that's going on? And, uh, you know, it's very easy to think that. Uh, it's certainly of supreme importance individually. You know, if, if you're not saved, who cares? You know, what, what's, if a man, what, what profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Obviously... Eternity, if you you don't have an eternal relationship with God, any, any anything that you get in this life, it's just you know you're going to wake up from you know a dream and for an eternal nightmare. I mean that that's that, that's how it would seem. But what is the chief end of everything? And I was listening to some you know a teacher about talking that the chief end is the glorification of God. And I kind of resisted that in myself. It's like I can see what you say and hearing what the but. It's like, boy, I really want to, you know, stick with that salvation thing because, you know, salvation is so important. Our encouragement to evangelize and how, how important it is to have everybody who can, you know, with God for eternity. But I was forced to conclude that the chief end of everything is God's glorification. God is glorified in in our salvation, 
I mean, look, he is motivated by love and at the same time uh, not violating his justice. I mean, that, that, that is an amazing thing. And how much glory does God get in that? I mean, he did not have to do anything. He could, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in a, in a perfect relationship before any, any of us existed, yet he took that step to create us, create the angels, create us, knowing all the awful things that would happen, and yet still provided salvation for us that didn't violate his character in any way. That is amazing. But so, with that, armed with that, it was actually very liberating to me. You, you can apply that to anything. Like, God, how can help me glorify you in the problems I'm facing right now? You know, we all have our problems. We all can look. I mean, we'll use a, a good a good example, an easy example that probably catches a lot of folks. And that is, you know, you see the rich evil man, and you know you're struggling to pay the bills. You know, God's keeping you fed, but wouldn't it be great if you just had a little more money in the bank so you wouldn't have to wonder where the next bill is going to, how the next bill is going to be paid? And you, know, Father, why can't I just have like this guy's got billions? And is wasting his time and ruining, you know, and ruining things even with it. And I just can't have a little more. And yet, if you step out of yourself, stop looking at yourself, and look at God, how is God being glorified in this? It's liberating. It's like God, glorify you. May you be glorified somehow in this problem that I have. I don't even know how. And sometimes you do get to see it. And a lot of times we do get to see a little bit of it, and in an eternity we'll probably, you know, I would expect that we're going to see like the full panorama of what exactly happened. You didn't, like, you're going through a problem and handling it well and someone else knows about it. You know, God's getting glorified because they can see that you're handling it well in a way that they couldn't and are attracted to God because, well, they have something, there is something powerful there beyond this world. And So God can be doing all sorts of things, but if you just focus on His glorification it does take a lot off the table. And when I thought about that, in light of what we're going to talk about this morning, it's like, okay, there is history and prophecy. You can see what God's up to. And he is accomplishing some mighty things. And this is very scriptural, because how many times have you gone through the Old Testament, even the New Testament? And no matter how many centuries have passed since, for example, the the Exodus, which I think is the best example of all of these, is like, you know, remember the God who got you out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea and got you, you know, how many times do you see that repeated? You know, it's been centuries and the Jews keep referring back to that. Well, they're remembering what God did. And that is an amazing thing. I, it's Just imagine yourself being in their shoes. You're stuck up against the wall. Pharaoh's coming. Got nothing to do. <laughs> Moses says, be quiet. And the sea parts. And they go through and the nations see it. I mean, when the when the conquest generation got got into Canaan finally, you know, what were they worried about in Jericho? So we heard about that. You know, Rahab was knowledgeable of it, even you know came to faith in God and was was saved through it. But there was a remembrance of what was done. So we're going to see a little bit about that uh, today. And I was uh, as we were preparing to cover, you know, Drew to have this this day off. You know, Kel, you know, Kelvin and I were talking, and I, I said, I don't know if I'm going to have enough for two sessions, th- this last installment. And I, and I even said to myself last night, I said, well, now that I've gotten through it, it's like, oh, I might have enough for two, and it's a good thing that that might be the case. So um, this aside even is helping with that. So I might, if I seem like I might be stalling a little bit, uh, well, I am encouraged to do that because you're stuck with me for second session. 
But anyway, but now let, let's, and there are no notes. Uh, I, I did actually have something. I, I found them to myself that I wrote a long time ago and forgotten about, but, but we're really just going to take back and just, um, and, and just walk through it. And today, because of having to, you know, fill, unexpectedly fill two hours, it is an even better day than ever for questions. So if there's a, hey, wait a minute, or you zoomed past something, because I often zoom past things, when you're involved with these things to a degree and you, you kind of get all in your head, you, you just blow through them sometimes like, a, hey, wait a minute would be great. Do not be shy. I love questions. Even if it's a challenge, even it's like, I don't, I don't see where you're coming from with that. I am fine with that. I think we don't have enough of that. If, if there are failings in the church at large and evangelicals in general, I think is the inability to have a cordial conversation about differences that we have inside of the church. You know, and I'm talking about like, you know, Calvinism versus free will versus Arminianism, different areas of prophecy, what happened with creation. We fail church-wise to to we, we fail when we don't have good family conversations. We're like the world. I mean, you see, I mean, if you even spend a moment on Facebook and see people posting anything about news or developments or whatever and the hate that goes back and forth, you know, it's awful to see, but, you know, the world, why should we be surprised if the world does it? But if the church can't have a conversation, and, and I've been through, a, I've been through a, a bunch of different studies in these time, kinds of topics, and the condescension that happens from one side and the and the the name calling from the other. Give an example. Uh, and those of you also endured my creation series, which seemed also seemed endless. Yet you're here. We are here in history, and it's it's past. Um, there was a there was a, a a young age creationist who took uh, an opportunity, and of all things, a a night a fine short paper he did on the book of Numbers and how the Israelites were being numbered uh, before, you know, going into the in, into the land, and how adding up each tribe, and then there was the bottom line of how many tribes together, and how they added up, and you know, the scoffer says that there were really weren't hundreds of thousands or estimated millions, but it was much less. And just out of the blue comes, just like in the same way, the day age creationist compromises on something. Now, I don't believe in day age creationism, but he had no. Re reason to go out of his way to say compromises. So I just wrote a letter to the editor. You know, if he wants to, if he wants to go against the position, fine. Why? And and eventually, I got into a dialogue with the with the the the, the, the physicist who wrote the paper, and he said, "Well, if I can't call them compromises, what should I call them?" I was like, "Don't call them anything. Don't call names. I mean, should we have hard conversations about what is real and what the Bible is teaching?" Yes, but can we do it like a family and not just stand behind a position and throw a rock? It, it, it's bad. It happens with creation. It also happens with uh, with what we're talking about here. Uh, typically, is referred to uh, pre-tribulation rapture out of a dispensational theology. People refer to people in evangelicals refer to this as you know all sorts of terms. But anyway, that was way too much of a digression. But but anyway, so that, but that's the spirit of what we should go into this. So anyway, what have we done so far? We've talked about this beast in Revelation, this seven-headed, ten-horned uh, creature. We've shown from Daniel that it is a representation of empires from the past, one current at the time of the writing of Revelation, which was Rome, 
and then a future, a future uh, yet to be, from our perspective, kingdom. Now, let's just pretend that I have seven fingers on this hand and instead of just five. So we had this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, and in addition to that, we find that there's the representation of Satan, which you can see over there, that's the serpent out of Revelation 12, is got the same motif. It's kind of like we can see behind the scenes, Satan is always pushing the buttons on here. God's got a plan. Satan's always pushing the buttons, trying to stop the plan, slow it down, speed it up, send it sideways, whatever. I mean, he is on a he is on a collision course with destiny. He knows it, but in his like desperation and arrogance, I guess thinks he can you know just kind of derail it. He's got I guess no other choice. So, but we we've seen that. So let's but now we're going to look at this thing. Let's see this thing in history. It is very typical, as I said earlier to look back in history. The Jews did it all the time. Let's look back to Egypt, see how God saved us, look at the glorification of that. So we're going to take a walk through history and a little bit of, a little bit of the future of what we've learned and see this here. So, all right, now let's... I did not test the clicker today, so let's see if I can get this thing to behave. Okay, now we are going to set everything in the framework of, in the, into the framework of history. So we're going to back up as far as we can back up. And I've borrowed from previous uh, PowerPoints. Again, I'll make the disclaimer, whatever artwork you find substandard, that's on me. And if you want to be moved, if you have artistic talent and are moved to help me out, I will greatly receive the, uh, excuse me, the help and we'll see about improving things. But until then, you're stuck with this. So we're going back. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. As far as things go, the oldest verse in the Bible. Whoops. There we go. Come on, PowerPoint. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. Step past that. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John 1.3. Which would also include the angelic host. Now, after that, we have the fall of Lucifer. You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are the anointed cherub who covers. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Ezekiel 28, 12, 14, and 15. Widely held as referring to Lucifer. It's very clear when you read it, and it's something learned from Scripture, that there will be dual references and God will just start on one thing and then suddenly switch over and if you're and it takes a little work to do it but it's clearly there if you study the details we're still working our way into what we've learned here after that is the creation of mankind which is handled in Genesis as we know then God said let us make man in our image according to our likeness God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them Genesis 1 26 and 27 of course, the next big event was the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. And you know the story. The serpent. The fruit. Being fooled by Eve being fooled and Adam doing what he did on purpose to uh, you know, full knowledge of what was happening. And yet, you know, now we're all fallen, fallen in Adam. The next big event... Uh, the next big event in Genesis, and we are skipping about to get to our history, is the flood. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. 
Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. Make for yourself an ark. Genesis 6:12-14. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. All that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Genesis 7:11 to 12, 18 to 19, and 22. After that's the Tower of Babel. The whole earth had used the same language and the same words. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11, 1 to 4. These are, of course, the people after the flood who came from Noah and his sons and their wives. The Lord said, behold, this is what they began to do. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city, Genesis 11:6-8. And this is where we see nations come in. We were talking about nations and the, this multi-headed creature, so now we see where the nations are coming from. The call of Abraham, Genesis 12. After Babel, you know, everyone was scattered, scattered across the earth. We had the different languages, the different culture groups. You can read about that in Genesis 10. And then, and of course, we can see from history, and there's a, there's a, a good book by uh, Alexander Hissel, Two Babylons. I don't necessarily agree with all his conclusions, but he documents uh, on the arising of paganism, uh, kind of like each culture had its own paganistic, uh, paganistic uh, uh, flavor, but they all can be traced back to Babel and what got started there. And so the, really there is no great place to get somebody from, but then the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And it should not be underestimated what God did through Abraham. Because later on, after Genesis 12, I think it's in 15, where he sets the Abrahamic covenant up, where it says land, seed, and blessing. Everything flows from that. He, Dwight, uh, I understand Dwight Pentecost made the point, uh, and this is someone who studied under him, that that is the pivotal chapter of the Bible. Because out of those covenants comes the land, the land ultimately going to be the, the, the kingdom. There, uh, the, David, the Davidic covenant later on comes out of that after God chooses Israel and the house of David. And uh, there's also the new covenant where we'll, which we'll see the full, the full scale of that in the, in the coming kingdom of the millennium. But don't, don't lose that. We're not here to talk about that today, but as an aside, just stopping to say that, don't blow past that when you're doing your studies, reading through Scripture. Note the, you should note the significance of it because this morning we are trying to look at the Bible as a whole. And we can do this for anything that we learn, or just about anything we can learn in the Bible, can be put into the frame, this overall framework where it makes sense. A lot of false doctrine, especially about what has happened, what's going to happen, comes from not putting everything together in a cohesive format. Just let's take a little here, figure it out uh, without everything else, bring in an assumption and a presupposition, and then, oh yeah, I don't know how to make this thing shut up, so hopefully I don't get a call this morning. So we are uh, might have to just toss it into toss it somewhere. We had a soundproof box anywhere I can put it. But anyway, don't uh, we? you bring everything together, 
running into false doctrine is a little bit more difficult. Uh, just did a lot of studying on the coming kingdom lately. And I had a discussion, I think I told you last time, about with my friend uh, at work. A very close Christian friend. He's an amillennialist. He's out of a, an evangelical mainline denomination. And, you know, he was asking me the question, you know, like you hear so much out of, out of what is known as uh, preterism, that everything has already happened. He said, said, well, there's a guy out there, you know, I listened to, he said that Jesus came already, is it? Well, where is he? You know, I mean, it's like, where is he? And, of course, their point, he came in the hearts of men. Well, if you look at the scriptures about the, re- the return of Christ, the second coming, you know, uh, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that the Jews have been looking for, rejecting, comes back, it's like, you know, if you take what they said and even apply it figuratively, it's like that that whole kingdom stuff's been oversold. You know, Satan does not appear to be bound. He's uh, quite active in everything, and it just—I mean, it all—it almost just struck me as silly. I, I mean, we have a—we are able to—we are able to have a good conversation about differences, but it's like it's just where is he, and where did that come from in my soul? Just having everything kind of lined out, and you just keep putting things in, in, into uh, into order. And I'd like to make, before I get a little bit further, I'd like to make a good plug about foundations. I think one of the most beneficial things that was done in the book Drew put together, Foundations, are those key dates of the Bible. And we're now about to get into that as we as we start taking what we learned to put it in there. Um, Bob Thompson told me years ago when we were talking about uh, making foundations available to pa- pastors in the bush who need training, who didn't have any training, is that... Uh, a lot of these people think that, you know, Noah and Moses and Paul sat down and had a Bible study together. And, you know, that sounds funny. And he wasn't slamming anybody. It was just a humorous way of putting it forth that there is a real problem out there that, you know, when there's a, a church or a group of believers started in some country, it's like the guy holding the Bible, well, guess what, you're the pastor. You know, that poor guy. I mean, great that he's got a Bible in his hand, but then he's stuck just going through it. And that's why, that's why uh, foundations have been put together is to give people a guide to be able to learn things and an important thing about sorting everything out in scripture is to be able to, to put it next to these key dates because the Bible is not written in strict chronological order. I'm sure Mario can attest to that since you uh, you know help out with folks. So let's just take this call of Abraham and you may have seen this artwork before because Drew has gone over that in, in a, a banner we put together for foundations. So there you can see that the, the dates themselves are not as important as the, the sequence of things. So there we have there we have Abraham. Uh, we best guess we can do is 1875 B.C. But but now, if you recall that seven-headed beast, all those kingdoms had something to do with the dominance or or uh, and, and attacks against Israel. So here we're going to see that first head show up in history, like Egypt. Egypt was the we, we had identified Egypt as the first head, and right in between those two big dates, because you can see that 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 that. Uh, Royalty-free free clip art is Moses parting the Red Sea. So if it's not clear, that's what he's doing. That's there. So in between the call of Abraham and the Exodus, important Egypt-related stuff and Israel-related stuff started happening because you had the birth of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And Jacob you know, was renamed to Israel. And so that's where the, the nation of Israel started because you always hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that's, you know, Abraham had other kids. They had other nations, um, 
And some of them want to lay claim to uh, to the be- the benefits of Israel. They, they can't have them. They can have blessings in God by accepting His plan and believing in Him uh, always by faith. But you know, the all the sons of Abraham are not Israel. Israel is through Jacob, and of course Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery and then eventually became a uh, you know, second guy in Egypt. The 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 family went down. The seventy went down and then started to become a great nation. And that was great, except later on, Exodus 1.8 has that, when that book starts, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And you remember what happened. The Egyptians saw the Israelites growing, said, we've got to be clever about this. Put them under heavy taskmasters, and then and, you know, build, you know, build this and build that, and you've got to make bricks, and now we're not giving you straw. They were oppressing them, and then it got even worse. Hey, midwives, you see a you see a baby boy, you go drown him. Okay, that is a big attempt to destroy Israel. And why? And and now remember, from the image that we had of the of the seven-headed serpent, which is Satan, he's pushing the buttons here. What happened? The Abrahamic promises. God said, "We're gonna I'm gonna do this, that, this, and that through you." And there was a prior. Uh, a prior promise of the Messiah. So God's going to work through Abraham. What's Satan going to do? Uh, I got to throw every stick I can in the spokes, and that would include exterminating exterminating the Jews um, as they could. Because if you kill all the boys, eventually either the you know the the women have no husbands or they marry Egyptians, and eventually you dissolve the nation of Israel. That there's there's the attack. But obviously it didn't work out. The uh, just a couple other points too about about Egypt, and I really got to keep. There's a glare. I got to keep eye on the time there. The um, there's something it's easy to skip past because you get into all the plagues and everything. If you remember when the first confrontation with Pharaoh is the whole thing with the staffs, you know, like uh, you know the uh, you know the uh, Aaron's staff, uh, you could throw down and make a snake. Well, the 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 Egyptian you know uh, the Egyptian sorcerers could do the same thing, but the uh, Aaron Snake ate the other two. It's like that's not a mythology. You know, the world likes to write off a lot of scriptures, mythology or legend or whatever. It's like that happened. Now that can only be one of two things: some type of clever trick. And I've seen people talk about, well, you know, if you hold this snake the right way and the nerves, and that's what these guys were doing, and the snake would get paralyzed, and you let him go, and he moves around or whatever. Um, I'm not willing to die on that hill if someone could prove that that's true, but uh, you know what? I will take the Bible in its plain sense, unless there's some good reason otherwise. And if that's really what's going on, there was some serious occult power happening in Egypt a long time ago. Uh, And that power extended even to those uh, sorcerers to be able to reproduce the first two plagues, uh, uh, the Nile being turned to blood and the plague of frogs. And that should help us think forward to the time of the Antichrist, because uh, if you read, if you read the, uh, the, I think a, a literal translation of the Greek in Second Thessalonians 2 about deceiving the world with lie signs and lie wonders, and in Revelation the false prophet being able to do things in front of people that are miraculous, making the image of the beast come to life, whatever that turns out to be. Some people like to think, well, it's just going to be an AI computer program or something like that. Well, no one's impressed. I mean, it may be impressive, but that's very natural. Uh, again, unless unless there's some other reason to think, I think it's going to be a bona fide occult satanic miracle. What happens with that? I think that's 
that would be at least the champion position, if you will. If you have a challenger to that, as far as well, what, what might be different, fine. I'd be, you know, that's something we can all talk about. But let's not lose sight that there is, uh, you know, Satan. He's on a leash. He's allowed to run so far, and some of that, at times, has included uh, the folks who are working on his side of things to have demonstrable occult power. So don't. That, that's just a little aside. Remember, we're putting this into the big framework. Of, of the Bible, um, but after uh, after the Exodus, uh, Egypt uh, didn't give Israel much much trouble for a while. Uh, this is again this is part of the the foundations outline. Uh, right at the same year of the Exodus was also the the Ten Commandments. But you see a major jump ahead to that 965 B.C. That's the establishment of the temple. That was not royalty-free clip art. That was a desperate guy trying to throw stuff together. It's like, how do you do the foundation of a temple? A little picture. It's like, okay, we'll take the Ark of the Covenant and start putting bricks in front of it. So that that's that, that's all you got for, for the foundation of the temple. But at that time, you had the United Monarchy. And a little bit thing about it, Egypt is Egypt didn't, uh, from Scripture, didn't give Israel much of a problem until the divided monarchy. Afterwards, there was, uh, uh, like in 1 Kings 14.25, was under Rehoboam. I think it was Rehoboam. He was given trouble with and, and, and taking uh, taking tribute. And then a little bit later, when Egypt was a vassal state to the next head, Assyria, which we'll talk about in a minute, they uh, this this we talked about in Daniel. If you remember the kind of the last hurrah of Judah of the of the southern king of Judah was King Josiah, where he had instituted the reforms. And everything was getting better, and people remembering how to, you know, oh wow, the law, we found the law, we're we're doing everything right again. But there was, um, as Babylon, the third head, kind of getting ahead of it, was coming to power in the region. The previous, the second head of the beast, Assyria, you know, they were fighting with each other. It's like Assyria is going to fight Babylon. Egypt is now reporting to Assyria, and. Uh, the the uh, the pharaoh uh, the pharaoh was kind of sending his forces through Israel to go up and help the Assyrians and Josiah said no I'm going to stand in the way of that now if someone's read uh, read that and studied that and would like to offer me a little more insights great I can't see one way or the other if Josiah was doing the right thing or the wrong thing uh, in that was he doing the right thing as any king shouldn't let anybody you know pass through his kingdom but the result of that is Josiah got killed. And after Assyria and Egypt got their butts kicked, Egypt pulled back through Israel and said, um, "No, this is going to be the king." They they put their they put uh, they put somebody else in as king, uh, still in the still in the royal line, but a very you know the, Israel went from a last hurrah to a low point, uh, a low point in that. So that then Egypt after that kind of came off the scene as the as the successive empires went forward, but. Egypt was pretty much done as the the key player against Israel after after the Exodus. So that is it. I will take a breath. I did encourage questions. So is there anything so far that I should stop and go over before we move on to that the second and third heads of this uh, beast? So okay. So we'll we'll move along to down the row, skipping a couple of the other other points and. Uh, I've been asked more than once, like, why why are these pig feet tied up? That 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 is, if you can see it, that's that's hands tied up against the only clip art I had uh, available to me. And 721 B.C. is when Assyria finally took the um, the northern kingdom into captivity. Uh, 
if you're uh, just a couple of notes about Assyria in your Bible, because Assyria is pretty big in the Bible. Uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah, about when he was going to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. That is, they were a big focus of that, and that happened 795, 793 to 753, somewhere in there, so long before this point. Uh, the Assyrians are bad folks. Uh, you're welcome for not telling you everything that they did. I mean, that that they were that bad. They're very cruel people. They're they're actually you know the Romans, uh, you know, had crucifixion. They're the ones who perfected it. The Assyrians are the ones who invented it. So the kind of mind that would invent crucifixion, pretty cruel, pretty bad. But there's a there's a they can give us pause though, to stop and think. You know, I mean, imagine you. Know, if we were in the position of like a Jonah or whatever, like these guys are these guys are the lowest of the low. Yet God sent a prophet to see if they could, you know, to 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 turn them around for a little bit, and they did. A lot of people did repent. So that should be an encouragement to us, and encouragement to anybody that you might witness to. What's the common objection? Oh God, yeah, I've sinned too much, and God wants me. Well, guess what? God sent Jonah to Assyria. They're bad folks. They tortured people for fun. And they were, and they were also actively against God's program. They not only took, uh, they not only took the northern, the northern kingdom, but they came, they were this close to taking the southern kingdom. Now, if you remember that story with with Hezekiah, and you know they're outside the walls saying, "Hey, <laughs> I think the the one of the generals or whatever in the Assyrians said, my boss will spot you two thousand horses, and we'll see if we can, you know, we'll see what happens." It's like. No, no other god was able to stop us. What makes you think your god's going to stop us? You know, and God's like, oh, that's a good point. You know, 185,000 Assyrians wake up dead the next morning. But they, they were, it was that close. So Assyria, pretty bad. They, uh, they, and they, the northern king, the northern tribe, they took those folks and moved them away to someplace else and moved other people into that place. And that's where the Samaritans come from. So you can see why there was a a, 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 an animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans during the time of Christ. That again, we're setting, we're, we're helping all these things to help understand the Scripture as a whole. Assyria, bad news. If if uh, Second Kings is really where they pick up, you know, chapter 15, they start uh, Israel's paying tribute to them, and then Assyria started pillaging them, and then finally, uh, and finally, they, they did the, the captivity. Also, Judah was seeking. Help from Assyria against Israel and Aram, uh, or Aram, or however you pronounce that. So Judah kind of walked into getting this influence going on. There was a lot of there was a lot of bad going on here. Satan was uh, having a good time with the Assyrians, but God's plan was never stopped. And that the thing I just told you about with Judah, you know, like he's they're wanting to roll through there, and it's like, okay, let's hit the brakes on this one. So Assyria got as far as it was allowed to. So, so there, there's a serious. Any qu- oh, and then the book of Nahum, uh, prophesied against Nineveh. That, that took place, I think, uh, 100, 120. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure about when that took place. Maybe 100, 120 years. I'm forgetting my Old Testament survey. It's like, okay, you know, you got, you guys had your chance to repent. There was a repentance, but that didn't pass down a generation or two. And times, uh, times up for Syria. They were culpable. They knew they they could have talked to their dads and their grandpas and grandmas and moms and everything and about what happened, but you know they rejected it. So that's the second head, uh, second head of the beast. The the third 
We talked about Babylon. We talked about Babylon a lot because it's a big deal in a big deal in the book of Daniel. Second Kings 25 is a reference to the, the the captivity of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. The Babylonians they took control of stuff. There's a prophecy in Jeremiah that said it's basically it's, uh, Babylon's going to dominate for 70 years. And the best we can figure out from looking at the timelines of uh, uh, scripture like when the Babylonians were finally overthrown in Daniel 5, that was the handwriting on the wall. To kind of back-calculate the 70 years, uh, best guess puts it at the, the Battle of Haran, which is the same town that, uh, you know, when God said go into this land, and he took Lot with them, and he took his dad with them, and they settled in Haran, and then the dad died. It's almost like from here, that's where they stepped into the Promised Land. That's the same town um, Babylon moved into, the, and took over the Assyrians and the Egyptians tried to kick them out they failed that seems to be the starting type as best as I can figure uh, uh, figure for the for the start of the the Babylonian era in this in this creature uh, don't have a lot of extra notes about Babylon we covered it a lot during during Daniel so okay take another breath five minutes left to the hour ends anything on Babylon Assyria or Egypt come on any shills out there no. Okay. Good. I I, I call. Uh, hopefully, Uncle Larry will be here later. I call him my favorite shill. So he kind of always out there to, to to help out to help out up here. So don't don't feel like you have to come up with something though. Or if uh, but uh, as as much as I'd really love you better than everybody else. So for whatever that's worth. All right. So again, in these in these dates that are put uh, in in foundations, which are really good for sorting out scripture. The next big date we have is 1 B.C., and that's the birth of Christ. But in between those two dates, a lot took place. That's where you have Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, we, we saw the reasons behind them. We learned those from Daniel, and we're going to look at each one of those a little bit, a little bit more uh, in, in depth. I guess we'll end up with Medo-Persia this hour. So that, that head, Medo-Persia. Remember Daniel 8? There was this prophecy given to Daniel about the ram and the goat. And there was the ram with the two different lopsided horns, and one was smaller and then grew up, and that's the Medes started out as the dominant uh, of the two uh, people, and the Persians uh, grew up, so that horn grew bigger. And that's the fulfillment of Daniel 8 and 11. Daniel 8 is where the whole uh, ram and goat thing was. And Daniel 11 talked a little bit about successive, successive kings. And why is that important? Why is history not something to help me go to sleep with? Because don't forget... We talked about earlier, the Jews were at a low point. All these wonderful promises to Abraham. They had this history, well, yay, under David and Solomon we were doing awesome, but now those are the good old days. We are at the bottom end of everything. We're in captivity now, and it's getting worse. Why should we be hopeful? And God says, I got it all under control. And in His grace, He gave little kind of sub-prophecies, if you want to call them, little incremental prophecies. Like, hey, Three more kings will show up, and then this fourth king will go do this, and then the Greeks will get mad. And the believer during that time could say, oh, man, it's a, is it ever going to get better? And we got this kingdom promised. Well, where is it? We're like the lowest of the low. Hey, did you just hear thus and such happen? Check out the scriptures. Like, all right, God said it's going to happen this way. I can take that encouragement to keep going, to keep moving. History's on its History's on its track, and we could look back and say, dudes, yeah. I mean, how many times have you read Scripture? It's like, Samson, dude, don't. Go to Delilah. What is wrong with you? Or, 
David, just hang in there, man. Just or you know whatever. Daniel, yeah, go for that lion's den. It's gonna be, it'll be okay. And then we can all look back in that, and it's like, well, what about today? It's like, oh, I gotta pay my bills. Or I just turn on the TV and I want to turn it off. You got people throwing rocks at something I think great happened. And they're throwing rocks and 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 downtown wherever they're they're they're, uh, they're rioting and everything. I guess so. It's our turn to see that history is not falling off the rails. It's our turn. We can take the air encouragement and we can look at them and say, yeah, you guys should have been encouraged. And it's like, okay, well, now it's our turn. Whether it's your personal history of bills to pay or relationships that you wish were better or it should be what they are, but they're, you know, there should be something that they're not uh, or you know, whatever awful thing you see on the TV or, or whatever. It's our turn to look back at history, just like the Jews always look back at Egypt and say, hey, they, God got us out of Egypt, or the prophets rather would tell them, the God that got you out of Egypt, don't forget him. I'm like, oh, we're going to worship the Queen of Heaven. Heck, what'd she do for you? She doesn't even exist. So, anyway, so take these things, take this history and be encouraged. And we'll, round up, we'll wind up real quick with Medo-Persia, and then we'll, we'll pick up later. Interesting thing about Scripture, a lot of scripture happened uh, and a lot of people happened under Medo-Persia yeah we're going to end up big tail end of Daniel uh, Medo-Persia going on there Ezra the return to build the to build the temple back oh yeah it's going to take a few more minutes I'm sorry because I, I stumbled across something uh, Haggai and Zechariah to you know uh, next to the, the the next to the last and third to the last uh, prophets they were around the time of Ezra doing their ministry Esther, okay, she was the Persian queen. Great example of how God can protect the Jews through a bad situation. As a matter of fact, it's kind of funny. You know, the Jews get attacked and they get a holiday as a result. They survive and get a holiday as a result, uh, Purim. And the same thing happened later on, which we'll see. Uh, Nehemiah, a reminder that Nehemiah wasn't just a story about, you know, being calm under pressure, but... There was a huge, maybe the maybe the most important prophecy out of Daniel 9:25, which was basically countdown to Messiah. They said, you know, God said, hey, when the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, that's when that 490 years, the clock, you know, that, there's a there's a tick-tock on that. And the thing that I uh, stumbled across this, uh, just this week when I was preparing this is I, I made a timeline up of everything that I could find uh, as far as when they were. And there was this deal in Ezra. Let's see. I wrote. I wrote that down. Ezra, go to go to Ezra 4:7. And I'm sorry for keeping you late. And someone raised their hand if they say, "Just shut up, please, and start over. Start over next hour." You know, kindly, kindly shut up. Uh, th- this was this was great. I I thought I had I thought I'd made a mistake. Oh, I'm turning in the wrong direction. I shouldn't talk and turn pages at the same time. All right. Ezra, Nehemiah. Now this is remember Ezra. They were given the the green light to go back and start rebuilding the temple. This isn't rebuilding Jerusalem; it's rebuilding the temple. Ezra, I'm sorry, Ezra, Ezra four seven. So, okay. And I was and I was writing a lot of four seven to four twenty three. Let's see. And I wanted to jump straight to the verse. Let's see. Oh, here we go. There we go. 
the, the, people, the, the people surrounding the Jews, you know, the, the, the people uh, who lived around that area, didn't want them to proceed with the rebuilding of the temple. You know, again, Satan's always trying to throw the spokes in God's plan. Uh, now, in the, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, Teberel, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehom, the commander, and Shimshi, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to the king of Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehom, the commander, and Shimshi, and the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges, and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Asnapar deported and settled in the city of Samaria and the rest of the region beyond the river. And now, okay, butter the guy up. Here it comes. This is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews came up, uh, came up from you, have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. And I saw that, and it's like, no, they were coming back and rebuilding, rebuilding the temple. What is this letter? It's like, they're lying. They're lying, of course. It's like, they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, but now they're rebuilding this rebellious city and check out the history of it. And it just dawns on me, it's like, Satan is trying to get ahead of God's program. It's like, okay, God promised that this countdown to Messiah clock is going to start with the rebuilding of Jerusalem. I know what I'm going to do. They're rebuilding the temple. I'm going to get in the way of this. They're trying... Let's get a decree to not build this city back. So he's already doing this, and what's he doing? He's using lawyers to do it. On top of that, people legal system. That was a, so. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to re, re, republish this uh, this paper here. And it's like, no, it is true that they wrote a letter about not rebuilding Jerusalem, but the letter itself wasn't true. It was a lie. And here we have, here we are seeing Satan behind the scenes pushing stuff and trying to get these local dudes. Uh, who are part of the empire to get legal stuff against the Jews to stop building everything because they don't want Satan doesn't want the temple going and he certainly doesn't want the he certainly doesn't want the city started because that's gonna that's gonna start the countdown of Messiah so if he can slow that down you know maybe he can buy some time to come up with some other plan to win so which we know will fail anyway uh, sorry to keep you over. Uh, but that was just uh, that was just too too good to not uh, want to uh, you know, leave off at the end of the hour. So any final questions before you take a now abbreviated break? All right, Father, thank you for showing us in history that you have always been at work, that things have never been out of control. Uh, it's such an encouragement to us. Help us, Father, to believe these things and not just to believe them, but to trust in them ourse- ourselves. It can be really tough day to day. We run into hard stuff uh, that our personal lives are off the rails. Father, just help us to uh, be always looking to glorify you in our situations, our tough times, that we will look to trust you, that we will move forward on the things that you'd have us move forward on, and everything else that we have to trust you with will just leave them in your hands. It's a tough, it's a tough time, thing to do now and again, but Father, help us to not only do this, but to be an encouragement to others who need to uh, hear that. In Jesus' name, amen.